Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today my very good friend, uh, ministry partner, and in many ways a mentor in my life, uh, Claire DeGraff. Um, most of you are probably not going to know the name Claire DeGraff, but uh, as I as I say in the podcast, he kind of <laughs> chuckled about this. He, I, I often refer to him as kind of like the Forrest Gump of Christianity. <laughs> I don't think he's ever actually heard me say that about him. And he was taken back. I said, well, let, let me explain. I said, you know, in the movie Forrest Gump, it seems like Forrest kind of shows up everywhere in in various historical moments throughout the 20th century. And and I feel like that's been Clara's journey. He's uh, kind of operated behind the scenes of Christianity or evangelicalism. You know, he's never been like a megachurch pastor, never, you know, written a, a um New York Times bestselling book or whatever, but he's had a significant influence on evangelicalism in in many different ways. Most of all, he just has an incredible story. He is uh, 71 years old. And as you'll hear, he had a pretty tragic awakening happen in his mid thirties. And he decided to really live out this Jesus thing in, in really radical ways and has just done so much for God's kingdom. I love his humility. I love his posture. And I'm excited for you to get to know him and and hear you know uh, various aspects of his um, of his adventure as he puts it in Christianity. Uh, if you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw, or you can just go down and look at the show notes, whether you're watching on YouTube or if you're listening on the podcast. And uh, if you are listening and want to watch it, uh, this episode, you can go to my YouTube channel. If you're watching and want to just listen to it, you can go to my podcast. So without further ado, let's get to know the one and only Claire DeGraff. I'm here with my uh, friend, Claire DeGraff. Uh, we, we go back, I mean, a few years now, Claire. It's been four or five years, four years maybe? No, probably, yeah, about four and a half years since we um, connected. I'll never forget getting that email from you saying, hey, I'm working on this small group project and I'd love to get your eyes on it. And so our relationship began as an editorial <laughs> relationship, but gosh, I mean, I consider you family. And, and I hope that I can be um, viewed the same way in, in your very large uh, uh, family. But um, um, why don't we go back to, I would love to go back to when you're in your mid thirties, successful. Actually, let's just go back before that. I mean, you, you have entrepreneur, entrepreneurial blood from the time you were a teenager. Let, let's just go all the way back there. And then we'd love to hear more about your kind of really conversion experience, or at least your kind of conversion renewal to Jesus in your mid thirties. And we'll go from there. Oh, thanks, Preston. Yeah. You know, probably the best way to start to talk about it is I, I'll read the first two paragraphs out of my book because it's the tale of, you know, if it's the tale of two cities, it's the tale of two lives. Okay. And, uh, and so uh, here's the, here's the, um, uh, the introduction, the first couple of paragraphs. And it says, uh, it, the, the title is My Story and Perhaps Yours as Well. Mm. Up until age 31, I was your standard issue Christian. The kind the Christian schools and churches in our conservative little town pounded out year after year like spiritual model T's, mostly in one color, beige. <laughs> we were covenant children, born and baptized into the church, so we figured we came with a cradle-to-grave salvational warranty. And in the mid-60s, every high school senior in my church was expected to make public profession of their faith unless they were an atheist or Democrat. And I was neither, <laughs> but I, but I had my questions yeah. and here's why I had my questions. I knew when I was in high school, what my God was, not who, but what my God was, it was success. Hmm. And I grew up in a great family. I had, I went to a church twice on Sunday, went to Christian schools all my life, Christian college. I had, terrific parents. In fact, I tell people the only gripe I have with my parents is I can't blame my dysfunctions on them. They're, they're, <laughs> they're wonderful people, simple people. Actually, my dad was a carpenter and my mother was a cleaning lady for the Zondervan Publishing uh, Founders. Oh, wow. and, uh, and, and yet somewhere, somehow in sixth or seventh grade, I just got this epiphany 
that if I wanted to have success and I wanted to have power and freedom, I need to have money. And so I turned into a little yuppie in, you know, I don't know, sixth or seventh grade. I don't I didn't know exactly sure. I joined Boy Scouts and of course, three years later I became an Eagle Scout. Um, uh, I was actually bashful, believe it or not, and uh, and and just kind of an introvert. I wanted to be a forest ranger before that, but I figured forest rangers doesn't pay very much money. So I, I needed to get over my being extrovert. So I started selling greeting cards door to door, rubber scrubbers, over the door hangers. And it, I, I thought I could sell brass knuckles to Gandhi. I mean, I just, I was just go, go, go. And, uh, and, um, uh, and so, I, everything I, I tried, I just went for it 100%. My parents thought I was a little odd, but, you know, it was good, clean work. And, you know, I was shoveling driveways up in, I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan, so we had plenty of snow back then. And uh, before climate started to warm up, ruined the business. But uh, we I shoveled driveways, cut grass, and that kind of thing. And so, um, yeah, I, so I was raised around the church and believed everything about God to be true. I believe the Bible to be completely true. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I knew everything about God. He just wasn't my God. He was close enough to be a comfort, but distant enough to be not terribly inconvenient, is the way that I would say it now. Yeah. But uh, uh, when I was in uh, college, my dad had a chance to buy a small business from my grandfather. We had eight employees. And we called it the shop, and it was the shop. And we made parts for office chairs that made chairs, office chairs go up and down. In the olden days, you had a screw underneath, you had to turn a nut and, and make up and down before gas cylinders. And while that was a decent business, and my dad was reasonably happy with it, that wouldn't get me private jet money. That's where I was heading. And so I, in, in college, at Calvin College, I invented and patented a tilt mechanism that went on the top of that that actually tilts chairs that eventually became the largest selling mechanism in North America. Wow. And, uh, but my dad got cancer and died a few years later at age 46. I took over the business while I was still in college. We grew it. I'm, now I'm 30, up 30 years old. We've got 175 employees, you know, running 24 hours a day, hmm. cottage on Lake Michigan, Mercedes convertible in the garage. And the doctor walks in my hospital room and he says, Claire, you, have lymphoma cancer, and you have five to nine years to live. I don't think you'll see your 40th birthday. Well, even for a, even for an aggressive little yuppie like me, I, that that can a prognosis like that can really mess up a 20-year plan. And so, I began to just. I mean, I was married at the time. We had three kids. We now have six kids and actually 20 grandchildren. And uh, but at the time, we only had three kids. And uh, and I was just having to reel with this new information because I was on top of the world and how could I get this information? So God used that, I think, to, to, to awaken me to some people in my church who were turned on to Jesus in a way that I wasn't. And, you know, they were always the first one to say, praise the Lord and give you big hugs and stuff. And that was not my scene at all. I was a country club kind of guy. I, I just thought they were like the Eagle Scouts of Christianity. Good for them. I just didn't see the point. I didn't need box seats in heaven. How bad can the bleachers be? I was in, you know. But then I began to, then I started thinking, well, maybe I want, maybe, maybe what they actually have is the real thing. And I've just been playing at this. And most of my friends have been playing at this. So I went to a pastor friend of mine, not my pastor. I wanted a second opinion. And uh, um, he, I said, what do they have that I don't have? And he said, well, they have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I said, well, how does that happen? I mean, you know, I know he lives in heaven someplace on a galaxy far, far away, but I, you know, I wouldn't know how to connect with them at all. Hmm. And he said, well, how did you learn to connect with your wife and, and fall in love with your wife and have a relationship with your wife? And he, I said, well, I don't, she looked good in high school one day and I asked her out on a date and we started talking and that was it. And he said, well, how much time do you spend talking to God every day? You know, I'm thinking to myself, should I lie to a pastor? <laughs> I better not. <laughs> I said, well, you know, I, I read, I mean, I, I pray before we eat three times a day. And I go to church on Sunday, twice on Sunday, actually. Mm -hmm. 
And he said, would you think you would have fallen in love with your wife if you, if you talked to her for maybe 30 seconds before you ate and went and heard a lecture on her twice on Sunday? And I, I go, no, obviously I didn't. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to begin reading a chapter of Luke a day for the next 30 days. And Luke has 28 chapters, but you know, he's got a couple of days off if you get lazy. But just read a chapter a day. And before you read, I want you to pray this prayer. God, teach me everything you want me to know and give me the guts to live it. Hmm. And he said, when you get done, come back in a month and tell me what God has told you. Hmm. It didn't take a month. A couple weeks into that reading, the kind of person Jesus described as one of his followers bore no relationship to me whatsoever. And I knew it. And I knew I was in trouble. Hmm. But I didn't want to be a Jesus freak. I didn't want to be... I didn't want to have to sell my Mercedes and go off and be a missionary and, you know, or get weird and have all my friends go, what's happening to Claire? Oh, he got cancer. So he got religion for a while, but don't really wear off. You know, I mean, I was still, it was still all about me and how I was going to be perceived and what I was going to lose. And I was literally a proverbial young ruler, just sniffing around the trap, desperately trying to find plan B, a less intrusive, less costly way to follow Jesus than actually following Jesus. And I couldn't find that. And so six, eight months into that, I got, I was up all night long because I knew this about God based on reading my reading in the Old Testament. When you make a vow to God, he takes it very seriously and he warns what happens when you take, and giving your life to Christ is a vow. It's not just something you do because you got all hot and bothered at an evangelistic meeting some night. And I'm not discounting what happens at a Billy Graham meeting or anything else, but I have been weighing this for a long time and I need if I make a vow to God, it's a vow for life that he takes seriously for life, mm-hmm. just like marriage vows. Mm-hmm. And so I basically what I would say, I pledged my allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom agenda, asked him for forgiveness. And my life changed from that point on. I didn't have any epiphany. I didn't. There's no L, you know, there's no angels or, you know, some big experience. But I had an unquenchable thirst for scripture and I began to read scripture by the hours and study and study and share what I learned with other people. About four or five years into it, my management team came to me and said, you know what? We're really doing great. We're very profitable, but your head is just not in this anymore. Hmm. I've had, I had, I had three patents to my name at that point, but I stopped working on them for a couple of years. And I said, you know, I think you're right. I don't think I will live to 40. And uh, I was 35 at the time, so I put the company up for sale on a company in the New York Stock Exchange and sold it. And I haven't had steady work since. So that was 1980, 1984. <laughs> You've been unemployed you know, ever since. <laughs> people, say, people say, well, how did you stay so busy? I say, you know, when you, when you, when you work for free, I get every job I bid on. So uh, uh, I am plenty busy. So, yeah, I've, I've had for 37 years, the economic freedom to not have a job, the theological curiosity to to use my entrepreneurial skills and my spiritual skills, uh, hopefully for the advantage of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And I've had an amazing life. People say to me, oh my gosh, it's so nice you do these things for God. And I said, you know, there are people who sacrifice for Jesus. I'm just not one of them. I get up almost every morning and do what I want, and um, and I'm still in good health. I'm 72, so the good news is they didn't die yet, uh, but I will someday. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's my short story of kind of, you know, then I just have gone from one adventure to another for the last 40, 37 years. So Wait, why don't you talk about, talk about some of those? I mean, you started, I, I don't know, close to 20 or maybe 20 nonprofits or been a part of getting those going. You've, you've, um, there's a lot of, um, <laughs> you, you could drop, drop a lot of Christian names too. You just have been kind of, I, I think I referred to you as kind of like the Forrest Gump of Christianity. Not the, you know, <laughs> not, not, not the, the, um, I'm going to take that as a compliment, well, even though you didn't mean <laughs> in the movie, it just seems like he, he, he pops up at the most random places, you know, like, you know, in DC and, and, you know, the president's office. And it's like, you, you've, you've kind of been, most people probably haven't heard your name or maybe they've read your book, but if they haven't read your book. They might not have heard your name, but you've been, I mean, behind the scenes of evangelicalism with some really 
movers and shakers, you know? Um, yeah. Why don't we start with one that everybody's going to recognize? I mean, you, you were at a church um, several years ago in Grand Rapids when um, some, you know, promising young, you know, and charismatic leader, uh, youth leader wanted to plant a church. Um, so can you tell us when little Robbie Bell um, <laughs> came to the elders and said, I think I want to launch my own church? And what was your involvement with that? Yeah, I was the chairman of the board, or chairman of elders of uh, a church in Grand Rapids here, a large church, and, and Rob Bell was on staff, and he kind of grew up in our church. So um, I had done some church planting in Ukraine for about three years. So I went back and forth to Ukraine for like three or four weeks at a time every couple of months, and I had an office in Kiev and just had a had terrific, but that's the only church planting experience I had. And he came to me and said, I think God wants me to start another church or start a church. So I said, all right, I've never done it in the States here, but, you know, let's figure it out. So uh, we, we began, and he says, hey, and I want to start in three months. So I said, well, normally there's about a year runway. He says, yeah, I know, but I want to start in three months. I said, okay. So we had to, we, I, you know, we, and I, I interviewed elders, picked the elders. I wrote the constitution for it, picked out the chairs that they're still sitting on, you know, <laughs> <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. And, 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 and it was a wild ride. Rob was, uh, I, I admired him deeply. He's one of the best communicators I could possibly imagine. Uh, he was a faithful father. Uh, you know, I took care of, took babysat his kids. They come to our cottage and, hung out and, and uh, we don't have much relationship today because he lives in California, but uh, um, God used Rob. I know he's very controversial in many ways, mm -hmm. but I have no doubt that he loves God mm -hmm. and that he, that God used him. And there might be tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who are believers mm -hmm. to this day. Do we have some theological differences? Yeah. And we've talked about that and we've, we've agreed to be friends in spite of that. But yeah, that was a um, that was great training for me because then I had the opportunity to do three or four more churches after that, um, based on kind of what I learned. So yeah, I was. How how did you guys? I mean, because yeah, Rob, he was always a forward thinker, thinking outside the box, kind of contrarian, and in, in, and I say that in a positive way. I feel like I I can be contrarian in, in some ways, and um, but then you know he he really pushed the envelopes in certain you know, um, you start tipping over more and more evangelical sacred cows, you know, and, um, one might even say some Orthodox sacred cows, but, uh, w when he really started to, f you know, um, challenge some of the, you know, maybe traditional beliefs of Christianity, how did, how did you guys as a relationship work, work through that? You know, did you, were you, did you ever raise concerns and how, how did he handle that? Or what did that look like on a relational level? Well, he started coming under the influence of Brian McLaren uh, uh, a number of years ago, about three years into this church planting experience. In the meantime, by then, I had actually stepped back into my church, was still an elder at my church. I never intended to leave my church. I just helped him start this church. So, um, you know, I didn't notice it on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week, even month-to-month -month basis. But then he started giving me some of Brian's books. And then we, we started meeting and talking about them and alarm bells went off because Brian is a very thoughtful person, uh, uh, knows the scripture really well, a great writer, uh, you know, so I have a lot of respect for him. In fact, we, I, we, had, we had coffee together one time when he was in Grand Rapids and, uh, and he asked me, he said, because uh, we were kind of debating on some things and he said, did you ever read my book, Generous Orthodoxy? And I said, I did. He said, what did you think? I said, I think it's too generous. And that's, <laughs> that, that was the problem. <laughs> that was the problem that, that I think that the, they broadened Christianity to, to mean so much that uh, while there are some areas that they actually helped me enlighten me on and, and, because I, I do believe the tent of biblical Christianity is bigger than most of us think it is. And the reason for it is just, you know, confirmation bias is a, an amazing thing because almost all of us who have grown up in the church have grown up in denomination. We have our favorite radio programs, our favorite Christian authors, podcasts, and everything else. So we have a particular worldview 
about the Bible and about Christianity. When we hear someone saying something different, it strikes us as either wrong or liberal. Yeah. And it might not be either. Right. But it sounds it sounds wrong to us. And so the minute something someone challenges that, then oh gosh, you get a problem with Christianity. Well, I don't have a problem with Christianity. I may have a problem with how it's been interpreted by some denominations, but I think the tent of biblical Christianity is bigger than than we can imagine. And so when I started meeting with Rob, we actually our first grandchild was born that same year. And so I remember thinking, I'm sitting in this coffee shop at Starbucks in Grand Rapids, old school, new school, and no school. And uh, and so and Rob was saying things in a way that nobody else was, and I said. I want to begin to learn to tell, teach my grandchildren with stories and ideas that are different than their parents taught them, different than what I grew up in, but are going to be more relevant to them so that they're still in love with Jesus and not in love with religion. Mm-hmm. So I just met my grandsons last night for dinner, actually, uh, five of them. So I bought them dinner. We talked about the Bible. But have you heard me say many times that I am a recovering religious person? So I probably would not have said that before Rob Bell. Hmm. Hmm. Um, but I'm more flat out in love with Jesus than I've ever been in my life. Yeah, yeah. wow. So um, I'm sorry, it's kind of a long explanation. No, but... no that's really helpful. And I, yeah, I mean, it's... Um... It's, it's, it's pretty unusual. As you know, um, the, you know, the older you get, uh, the, the more you can become a little more narrow-minded, black and white, and not open to considering whether an idea, a new idea, a fresh idea, you know, is, is biblical or not. Sometimes it's easy just to not even consider it. But as I've known you, I mean, you've always said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take anything and match it up to scripture. And if it, if I need to change my previously held convictions, I'll do it. If, if not, maybe this new idea is just a new idea and isn't actually biblical, but you're willing to be open to considering that, which, which is, I think it's pretty rare these days. Um, what about so some Thank of the, you. so after you 35 you sold your business and now you have the financial freedom to do whatever you want to do and one of the things you have wanted to do is start or help start I mean a lot of different nonprofits can you talk to us about um, some of the ones that really stand out in in your journey Yeah there's an Episcopal evangelist by the name of John Guest and um, and I'd never heard of the guy, but he uh, he was the the bunch of people in Grand Rapids who wanted to bring him into town to do a series of what we called evangelistic crusades. I can't imagine we actually used that word 40 years ago, but we did. So there it is. Uh, um, and uh, and so I just sold my business, so I volunteered to be chairman of it and kind of get it going. I had never I had never seen an altar call live in my entire life. <clears throat> But I was just arrogant enough and just, <laughs> I figured out, I could just figure it out. <laughs> yeah. and, and so, you know, I um, uh, God used that to have be very successful here in Grand Rapids. Uh, um, we, there was an article in Christianity Today, and so people started calling and saying, oh, could we have one in our city? Hmm. So, well, so John said, well, would you be president of the John Guest Evangelistic Team? I said, well, I'll try that for a while, but I'm, he's lived in Pittsburgh. I said, I'm not moving to Pittsburgh. <laughs> you know, I'm not that spiritual. I said, I'm going to stay in Grand Rapids. <laughs> I mean, you, can live, you can live in Pittsburgh if you want. So we put a team together. We did large meetings uh, in Cincinnati, like Riverfront Stadium, and, you know, in Cincinnati, wow. San Antonio, Orlando, uh, Chicago, and God really blessed us. You know, we'd have, we'd have 50, 60, 80,000 people out in we were, you know, people were coming to faith, and wow. it was exciting. And then uh, uh, about four years into it, we were asked to go to Russia in 1989, before the Berlin Wall came down. In fact, wow. about four months before that. And we were actually sponsored by Dynamo Kiev, which is the premier soccer team in, in Ukraine. And they were, oddly enough, under the auspices of the KGB. So... <laughs> They paid for our whole trip, believe it or not, because they could see that hand on the wall, handwriting was on the wall with communism. Yeah. They were trying to make links to people in the West, and this was the quickest way they could do that. So wow. that led to doing uh, a, uh, uh, three weeks of meetings in, in uh, Kiev and in Moscow and Gorky Park. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, but there were so few evangelical churches that we started a church planting ministry in Kiev, 
and I turned it over to somebody else about 25 years ago. That person has carried on. They've actually planted 1,342 registered churches in Ukraine. Wow. I mean, this guy is like the 800-pound grill of church planting. So, you know, most of my life, I have not been the initiator of most of these things. I've just found really talented people that I sensed were led by God, that loved God, and said, how can I help come around and put the organization around and think through fundraising, mm-hmm. um, organizing the board, and all of that kind of thing, just like the way you and I met. I mean, you're the brains of the outfit, and I'm just put together the, <laughs> the, the board and some of the organizational stuff. So God has allowed me to come along with side of some really talented people. and um, But probably the longest ministry that I was in is uh, 20 some years ago, 25 years ago, a guy walked to my office raising money. He was trying to uh, um, start deaf churches. And he told me that there was no Bible in the world, even in American sign language, in sign language, video sign language. Hmm. And this is back in VHS days. I mean, this is, this is long ways back. Yeah. And I said, well, that can't be. And I asked a million questions and and uh, and so he said, yeah, we've got we have some families living in an abandoned orphanage in Union Mills, North Carolina, in the mountains. And we're trying to figure out how to translate the Bible into sign language. Would you come uh, visit us? So I said, well, OK. So I went down for four days and just hung out with Zeph. And I, I won't get into all that I discovered, but I came back and I said to my wife, I think I found my next ministry. And she said, the deaf? You don't know anything about the deaf. And I said, apparently nobody else does either, so I may have a shot at this. <laughs> you know? yeah. But I said, I think they do. I think they just need some help to come alongside. So these are just, they had one full-time person, and all the rest of them just lived in this orphanage and shared communal baths and everything else. So I left that, actually, to go with you, so you ruined that career. Um, uh, I my, my <laughs> When my when I told you, when I told my wife I was going to help you start an organization, she said, "What are you going to stop doing?" And I said, "Well, I really hadn't stopped doing anything." And she said, "Well, you need to stop doing something." So, Door International, which they call they, today, they have. Well, I was on a conference call last week. They have 212 full-time people all over the world, uh, 90% of whom are deaf, wow. who are evangelizing and translating the Bible into sign language. So. That's one of these things where, again, it was talented, gifted people that just needed someone to kind of help behind the scenes to help organize things. So yeah. I've had a ball. And you, you, um, you I mean, ministry wise, you've had a, just a global influence, but even on a personal level, I mean, it seems like just you, you, you have a very global mindset. Um, and it, even that comes into like through adoption and you said you have 20, is it 20 grandkids and how many nations are represented in the 20? Do we have a, I don't know if we, do you have a. Yeah, I do. My wife keeps track of this stuff better than I do, but I think roughly we have, (laughs) we have 20 grandchildren. I know that Uh, six of them are international special needs adoption. And we have three of our own biological children and two we adopted from Korea as infants who are now in their mid thirties. And, uh, and an Albanian daughter, my wife found dying in Albania and called me up and said, I'm coming home with three kids, have a doctor at the, uh, at the airport with some oxygen. Can you, back in those days. Can, can you go back and give the context yeah. of that story? Because that, that, that really kind of blows me away. <laughs> well, my wife was in Albania with an with a adoption organization, Bethany Christian Services. And she had been raising money, helping them raise money for some um, organizations in Philippines. In fact, there's still several going on where uh, Cribs International is an organization that that helps uh, get uh, young girls out of sex trafficking, give them a home and get them on their own with a new identity and everything else. They're still going on. She helped start that mm-hmm. and raise some money for it. And so they wanted to do the same thing in Romania and Albania. And she went to um, Albania and uh, and went into one the children's hospital and it was just miserable. It was just, they had no medicines. Uh, people had to bring food in. They had no food service. If your family didn't bring you food, you couldn't stay there. Um, they had to bribe the doctors to give it. was just, this is 1992. And so 
communism had just fell, fell and they, this was just a poor country. Wonderful people, but just a poor country. And so she asked the doctor, are these kids dying? They said, no, we, we send the dying ones home. We can't do anything for them. She said, well, any of those dying ones, if they came to the States, would, could they get maybe get life saved? And she, she said, yeah, we keep a short list of about 25 kids who, if they got, if they got good care of the West, they could actually maybe be saved. Wow. So she, she said, well, I think I'll, I'll take some. <laughs> and he said, well, how many? She said, he said, Three. I don't know. That's the Trinity was in her mind. I forget what the story was, but it was three. So, uh, uh, so bless her heart. Uh, they assigned three kids to her, but in the two days while they were arranging all the visas, two of them died, and two more had to be re- had to re- be replaced. Okay. So, literally about four days into this, she gets on an airplane and she flies with these kids. None of them spoke English. They didn't even, they had a visa, but they had no passports because Albania was just that. But we had gotten special permission from the Albanian U.S. Embassy in Albania. They stopped her in, in Amsterdam and said, you can't fly because this woman's, this, these, one of these girls are going to die. So they pulled her off the plane, literally, and checked her into a hotel and brought a nurse, did, KLM did at the time, brought a nurse over, gave them an IV, got her good enough to bring her to the States. And we met her at the airport. Uh, all three of the kids had operations. All three were saved, but Mervetta, um, the one who we took to live with us for the next nine years, um, still has parents in Albania. They're Muslim. She gave a Muslim background. She was 15 years old and came to faith watching the Jesus film in Albania. Mm. And uh, we, we sent her to college at Cornerstone College here in Grand Rapids. She, then she became a missionary in Kosovo among gypsies for five years wow. and finally married a Norwegian and lives in Norway now and adopted two kids from Korea, from uh, uh, Colombia. So, wow. so like I tell you, we've had the great life. This is, you know, there are people who actually sacrifice for Jesus. We're just not one of them. It's just an adventure. No, there's there's times when I'd like to hide all sharp objects. You know, I mean, there's it is. It isn't always always easy raising that many kids or raising money or anything else. But I've had, yeah, I, I'm I'm blessed. Why don't you? So let's. So I, I want to come back and ultimately I want to spend some time you just speaking to people who may be at that, you know, midlife. Maybe not it's a crisis, but just kind of middle life. Maybe later in life. Maybe they're. The passion just isn't there anymore. Maybe they're like, yeah, I kind of want to just ride this thing out, you know, kind of coast on my spiritual fumes. Um, I want to ultimately have you speak to those, that group, which might be a, a lot of us. But um, why don't we give some background to how, how we met and why you became interested at, I mean, at that time you were in your mid, mid to late 60s and all of a sudden you wanted to understand the LGBTQ conversation a little better, which isn't necessarily the cup of tea for every, you know, 65 year old Christian in Grand Rapids. Uh, how did that come about? Well, about every other year for the last 20 years, um, I took groups of college students and high school students backpacking through Europe. Now it wasn't really always backpacking, but literally we'd start out in Oxford, Paris, Geneva, Krakow, Poland, and, um, and Budapest. And I had friends in all of those cities and I would teach a biblical worldview and history. I, I'm a history buff. Mm. And so I would take these young men and be about a week and a half of mentoring. And so um, I began to notice in uh, oh, 10, 12 years ago that a lot of the young guys I were taking, when you talk to them about LGBT people, mm. they wanted nothing to do with a church or a religion that did not that was unkind to LGBT people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, again, I thought of my grandchildren. And I want to prepare myself to actually have an answer for them that's true to the Bible, but it's also gracious and, and intellectually honest and kind. So I started going to conference conferences of LGBT people, Christians, to hear what they had to say. And you know, my, I came off my first one, and my, in fact, my second one, my wife said, 
didn't that kind of creep you out a little bit? You know, because we were raised, we were raised in the 60s and 50s, you know, when, when, you know, we were, we just thought being gay was the worst thing that could ever happen to you, you know, I, and, and so I, I, well, I am not, I mean, you know, you and I have talked about the fact that I was a redneck evangelical and, uh, and, but, but thought to myself, is there a way to be true to the Bible, but to be more gracious and kind? And so I kept, so I just then start acting, asking people at those conferences who self-identified as being gay or having families as gay, could I have a cup of coffee with you? Could I have dinner with you? Could I talk with you? Uh, help me understand your experience. Just the kind of thing you did, Preston, you and I had not met at that time, but I just started hanging out with LGBT people. I said, I don't want to argue theology with you. I just want to understand you. I want to understand how scared you were. Well, how you were scared with people like me. And, and, uh, because I want to see once how close I can come to you um, uh, without violating what I actually believe the Bible teaches. And so that led to me getting with Lori Krieg, who you've had on the podcast, you've had many, many times. Um, uh, I was her youth group leader, actually, at a church, and she has a same-sex attraction, really whip smart, you know, Oxford, went to Oxford, I mean, just super smart, and uh, married to a guy named Matt, has a mixed orientation marriage, and I said to her, I would like to write in a six to eight week uh, guide for churches to educate people. And my tentative title is leading your church to be as gay friendly as the Bible teaches. <laughs> and I ran that, even that title up the flagpole at my church. And I've got terrific elders in great church. You know, they go, well, why in the world we want to be gay friendly to people? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, you know. That's a provocative so, title, man. <laughs> just Lord forgive them for they know not what they say. You know? <laughs> but uh, so I just realized that that uh, most people, older leaders of churches in particular and pastors, were raised like I was on stories of Sodom and Gomorrah, and and you know just awful things that uh, that that made us predisposed to want nothing to do with LGBT people. But I, I came to the conclusion that Jesus wants everything to do with LGBT people hmm. and other sinners like me. Hmm. And uh, my, my sin just looks more sophisticated and spiritual you know, <laughs> than, than LGBT. So that's how we got involved in it. So when I got done, when Lori and I got done writing it, I said, you know, I don't know that we actually have my the theology straight, but we've quoted from this guy, Preston Sprinkle, a bunch of times. So I'm going to call him and see once if he's willing to edit this. I'll be happy to pay him to do it. And you were, it was during the summer, so you didn't have much going. You were teaching at at, at, at uh, Eternity Bible College at the time. So you took the you took the bait and uh, you edited it for me and taught me an awful lot. And literally, we were doing the edits the last day. And you said, I just lost my job. They just yeah. decided to shut this campus down. And I said, what are you going to do? And you said, well, I don't know. There's not much use for a theologian in Boise, Idaho. <laughs> Boise, Idaho, my family's here and everything. And I remember calling you the next day or two and said, don't take another job yet. Come to Grand Rapids and let's pray about, about us partnering with something. Because I've been on the Internet. I've listened to you speak. You're a way better speaker than I am. You're obviously a way better writer than I am. You are a um, PhD in New Testament, so you have gravitas with pastors. You're young, cool, and hip, and I'll never be again. You should be the face of this ministry. I'll help you put things together. And so you came to Grand Rapids graciously, trusted me to do that. And we spent a week together, and within a few weeks, we decided to start the center, which is, which is really your baby. You thought through almost all the facets of it, and I've been delighted just to come alongside of you and be your Barnabas. Well, let me let me yeah set the record straight a little bit for people listening. Uh, I mean, this ministry wouldn't have gone anywhere without you. I mean, there's no way. Um, I mean, you you have operated <coughs> largely behind the scenes, but that it's like um, you know I'm more like the drywall of the house, and you built the <laughs> the entire structure. So um, yeah, people don't see the studs of a house, but. Um, you have been that stud. I didn't plan it that way. That was a good line, wasn't it? You, you're the stud. You're the stud of the center. <laughs> not anymore. Not a seventy-two. 
Only in my dreams. <laughs> I, I remember one of the things that um, I think, well, I said up front and you kind of saw as well. I said, hey, look, I, I'm not a fundraiser. I'm not going to, I don't want to spend all my time and energy just like asking for money. And, and But you with your business background, the one thing I really liked is you said, let's let's build this thing to where it will, in a sense, fund itself so that the, the work you're doing, um, writing and speaking and training and producing everything actually will help fund the ministry. And, and that, um, I've been really excited. I mean, I'm COVID, you know, hit us pretty hard with that, but even there, the Lord's been super good. And, and, um, have you seen this kind of, I mean, you've done so many nonprofits and, and I think ours is, yeah, it's, it's really exciting that I don't have to spend so much time asking for money and people have been so good and generous, but I, I spend most of my time doing what I feel like I'm called to do. Um, yeah. You know, um, when I first started raising money for this organization, because it was good, it took us a year to kind of just get up and running to right. write all the materials, to think through the whole idea of leaders forum. We needed a fair amount of money. I said to people, I hope that, that this can be an economically sustainable ministry that maybe 70 to 80% of what we need can come in through the sale of materials and, uh, and um, seminars that we do, leaders' forms that we do. Now, I said, here's my disclaimer. An economically sustainable ministry is the unicorn of ministries. We all believe it exists, but no one's actually seen one. <laughs> and in all my years, I never had one. And so God has blessed this ministry to where I think we get pretty close to 70% of our income, except for new projects that we're doing from the sale of, of, of materials so that we don't have to have yeah. bake sales and banquets and right. stuff like that uh, uh, anymore. And so uh, this is, God blessed this in a unique way in a way I've never had this kind of thing before. Yeah. So it isn't like, well, I do this all the time, no problem. We just follow this formula. God had his hand in this ministry in a way that I've never seen it and any other ministry I've been involved in, has provided for us just shockingly generously. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I just last couple of weeks was making phone calls to people that have given to the ministry, and you know we did an end of the year campaign to kind of get us through um, the end of the year with COVID. You know, the last eight months, you know, it's been a slow drain. But man, I'm seeing names of people I've never even heard of, like giving you know, to the ministry. Sometimes it might be 500 bucks, thousand bucks, sometimes it's more or monthly giving. I'm like, who are these people? So I'm making phone calls and you know, it's, it's, it's great to get the financial support for the ministry, but to hear the stories, like why they have found value in what we do. I mean, people all over the country that a lot of them are parents with, you know, kids wrestling with their sexuality and you just, you can't put a price tag on, uh, you know, seeing and hearing stories of people that have, you know, really, been helped by the minute the work that we're doing so it's been it's been a it's been a challenging ride it's been an exciting adventure but um yeah who would have thought five years ago when we first met that it would have turned into this um what a thought mm -hmm. can you speak now to yeah somebody listening may, maybe they're so i'm 45 you're 72 um maybe somebody my age between our ages you know maybe they're maybe they're my age maybe they're kind of midlife maybe they're on the other side of midlife, and maybe they're just kind of like, hey, I still go to church, I'm not sleeping around, I'm trying to be faithful to my job, but I'm just kind of coasting, I'm riding on fumes, I don't, I don't, I feel like I'm kind of on the other side of living this adventure of, of Christianity, and um, what would you say to somebody like that, that may be kind of coasting in their uh, spirituality? Well, I, you know, there's two issues. Uh, first, what you're doing is if you're, if you're coasting your spirituality, uh, uh, pray about getting a spiritual mentor. I've had three or four of them over my life, and I just said, help me move from wherever I am to wherever you think God wants me. And, you know, most of us, if we wanted a good play in the piano, we'd hire a piano teacher. We are guitar, we take guitar lessons or go to a yoga studio or something, we get find somebody better than us, smarter than us, more experienced than us. And, you know, uh, and, and unfortunately, I think the substitute is for a mentor, it's just going to Bible studies forever. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and well, in fact, I wrote a blog one time, uh, the danger of too much Bible study. <laughs> and, and, the, you know, most of our, most of us, if we had kids that went to college for 10 years, at some point, we'd say, 
George, you need to get a job. I'm tired of you going to college. You need to go out and do something with it. And and there are guys I meet with that go to three Bible studies a week and think they have a ministry. Well, unless they're leading the study, they have no ministry. They're just they're being ministered to. They're growing in their knowledge, but but how smart do you need to be to actually impact uh, the world for God? Not terribly. You just need to be in love with Jesus, have some basic knowledge, and care more about other people uh, than than about yourself. And uh, it's, it isn't all that complicated, frankly. I think part of the problem is that a lot of guys my age have been raised in the church to think, well, you you know you worked hard all your life, you retired at 65, um, uh, retired to, to Florida someplace and killed time pleasantly in warm places. And I, <laughs> that's my worst nightmare. My wife and I are actually going to Naples next week for three weeks. It's the first time we've ever done that. We've never been gone for even two weeks wow. um, uh, on vacation. Well, one time is two weeks, yeah. But that's about enough for me. And then I'm on to doing things. But I'm already setting up meetings down there with, with guys and and because in between these activities, I have tried to be a mentor to men. So I've got about a dozen guys that I meet with regularly and and just kind of cheer them on to doing something more significant with their life. Uh, some of them are small business owners. Some of them are teachers. But, but just helping them figure out how to move from here to there. Bob Buford years ago wrote a book called Halftime and actually a better second book called Game Plan. And and. Uh, Bob was a friend. We we uh, I read some of his early drafts of his book. I I've he and I traveled together and spoke together for a time, and and he started the Halftime Institute, which actually helps men and women move from significant from success to significance, hmm. uh, because he saw how difficult that is. Because it's so tempting to do what everybody else does, and you know go down to Orlando and pay, play in the men's golf league at First Baptist Church and. Uh, uh, nothing wrong with First Baptist. I've been there, so <laughs> I don't need any cards and <laughs> cards and letters. But uh, God did not create us for that. So I think part of it is uh, begin to do something. Nike has it right. Just do something. Pray about something. I, I have done dozens of things that I started working on that eventually I saw that wasn't my gift. That wasn't. It just wasn't working. I wasn't excited about it. I wasn't passionate about it for something. So. Be afraid. Don't be afraid to make some mistakes. Tell, tell, uh, I, I, just, I, I've, I've completely forgot about this, but this is woven into everything you're saying. Your book, uh, The Ten Second Rule. What What is um, your book about? And how, how? yeah, just maybe give us the elevator pitch on the message, because that very much is woven into everything you're saying about kind of just responding, not overthinking things and responding to the spirit that is typically prodding us to do things a lot. And oftentimes we just kind of wait too long and let the feeling pass and then move on to more comfort. But yeah, what, what is, what led you to write this book and what's the gist of it? Well, the book is called the 10 second rule and, and it's not my idea. I actually learned it from a pastor in China who came speaking and I, and I had been wrestling with a definition for what a follower of Jesus was. And I've been asking a lot of people for a nice pithy little, you know, um, a sentence or two that I could tell people what a follower of Jesus was. And he said, well, so I asked him, what, how would you define a follower of Jesus? And he said, you know, I don't, I can, I don't know how to define it, but I know how you can become one and stay one the rest of your life. I said, okay, give it to me. Obey the 10 second rule. Hmm. Well, nobody can let that go. I mean, you got to ask, what's the 10 second rule? <laughs> Just do the next thing you're reasonably certain Jesus wants you to do and do it quickly before you change your mind. Hmm. And so I, I, I so I, hence the 10 seconds. Hmm. And um, and so I began thinking about that. This is now 15 years ago. And uh, and as I thought about it more and more, I just figured, why don't I respond more faithfully when I have this impulse to do something? Hmm. And so I'll just give a simple example that all of us can, can uh, understand. You're driving down the road. You see a car broken down the side of the road. For most of us... Um, we have this impulse, maybe I ought to stop and see what the problem is. The minute you have this voice or this idea in your head, God's never spoken to me audibly. So when I talk about voice, I'm talking about an impression that I think sounds like it comes from one, mem one of the members of the Trinity. Uh, but 
you know, maybe I ought to stop and, and, and help them out. And the minute that happens, there's another voice that comes in your head. They probably have a cell phone. They probably called already. They probably have insurance. And you have this little dueling voices in your head. By the time you are past them, you look in the rearview mirror and they're gone. You're on to other things. And, um, and I thought to myself, you know, the problem is in those kinds of situations, when I say no to these impressions more often than I say yes, I'm actually training myself to be disobedient. And uh, and because I just know intuitively, obedience is going to cost me something, time, money, embarrassment, mm -hmm. inconvenience, something. Mm -hmm. And uh, and if I say no to to that impression to do the next thing I'm reasonably certain Jesus wants me to do, I can save myself all of that trouble. Mm -hmm. And so just like water flows to the lowest level obedience does the same thing. And I was actually training myself to be disobedient. So I thought, well, you know what? The rule might be an actual way to train myself to be more obedient. You know, here I am in church singing these songs, um, I surrender all hands in the air, singing with gusto, knowing full well that there isn't a single person in this church, including me, that plans to surrender all. <laughs> and I'm thinking, God must just puke at this. I, I, I remember sitting in church one morning thinking that, but I thought the 10-second rule is a way to learn to surrender more. Hmm. And so uh, I, I didn't intend to write a book. In fact, I said to everybody, the last thing the world needs is another Christian book. And I'd never write a book. And But a friend of mine said to me, you've been teaching this 10-second rule thing, but I've got all kinds of questions. Would you, it was just a paragraph that I had that I sent out to people on fax machine, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, so I said, remember those? Yeah. Um, uh, so I started writing, um, oh, what I thought was going to be like half a dozen pages, maybe a dozen pages, um, with some explanation about how the rule works and some samples and stuff like that. And, uh, I came up from my office in the basement and said to my wife, I think God wants me to write a book. And she said, well, you said you'd never write a book. And I said, yeah, but it's on obedience. Think of the irony of that. If I refuse to write a book on obedience, <laughs> when I sit to see Jesus someday. So anyway, so that's how I yeah. became an author. And I've, I've only written one book and I, you know, I don't know if I have another one in me, but so the 10 second rule, just do the next thing you're reasonably certain Jesus wants you to do and do it uh, quickly before you change your mind. Now, I'm gonna, here's my disclaimer to what you said when you introduced me. Don't ever use the 10-second rule to decide who you're going to marry, what investments to take, uh, to make, what what ministry to, to do, because that's not an impulsive thing. You need godly counsel, read scripture, prayer, fasting, all those kinds of things. But I will say this. If you learn, you know, Jesus said, if you're faithful in little things, I'll give you much. Mm -hmm. That's the quick paraphrase. Yeah. Why in the world would God trust us with big ministry things that we all think we'd be happy to answer if we actually, if God actually asked us to do something, when in fact we aren't um, willing to be faithful in the small things? Mm -hmm. So, so, yeah, and that, the book sold. I mean, I, you originally self-published it, but it sold like people just kept buying it. That a publisher picked it up, and it, I mean, it did really seem to really resonate with a lot of people. Is that right? Yeah, it's interesting that, um, you know, we think of the, the Christian publishing business, <laughs> it's first and foremost a business. I don't mean, I think they're wonderful people. I, I had great editors. I, it was great. But yeah, I had to, I self-published it because I couldn't find a publisher at all. And then I sold, so then I just put it on Amazon and send out to people I know. And I sold 23,000 in the first six months. Then I get two offers from Thomas Nelson and from Simon & Schuster. <laughs> And so I said, well, why do I need you guys? I'm, <laughs> I'm doing fine. Thank you very much, you know. And they, they, they convinced me that I would have a broader platform. And, and it was true. So I ended up selling it to Simon & Schuster. But, but be, and, and interesting enough, I've, uh, they sold it to a German publisher. And they've sold almost 18,000 wow. copies in German. And I don't know a single German at all. Oh, and wow. so, uh, uh, yeah, so I, it's... But, you know, as you know, in ministry, you can't explain how these things happen. Yeah. You know, I, I, and, and, and because it has to be God. I'm not that good an author. I mean, you've read the book, so you know. I mean, I think I'm okay. But, I think you're but, a good author. No, 
I, you know, it doesn't just platform, yeah. it's God. And if we try to claim different, I, we're going to pay a price for that. So I think I've tried to hold things loosely. I, I, I think the purpose of my life is to, uh, two, two things, actually, well, actually three things. The purpose of my life is to make God look good. So I, I, I want people who don't know Jesus to look at me and say, you know what, I, I, I might consider taking a look at that. Yeah. Um, the second purpose is to make life better for other people. Mm-hmm. And the third purpose is to introduce people to Jesus and his kingdom agenda. Mm-hmm. And if I can do those three things without embarrassing myself before I die, I think I can die with my boots on. <laughs> and so... I have no intention of retiring. My wife said, when are you going to retire? And I said, why would I do that? <laughs> I hope my last office is a coffin. <laughs> so, no, I'm having too much fun now, you know? You've, um, I mean, you've been engaging kingdom work for several decades. I mean, from before the communism fell all the way through 9-11, pre-internet, post-internet pre-smartphone social media, post this, and now in the age of Trump, and now as we emerge into the post-Trump era, whatever that means or looks like. I mean, you've you've seen the American evangelical church go through some changes. Um, what would you say is are some maybe changes that, what are some of the big changes you've seen in the church? Like what is the church, how, how is it looking, how is it different than it was say 35 years ago? And then my next question is going to be like, I would just love for you to kind of, do you have any concerns with like, what are you like, man, we really need to do better at this, given some of the drastic changes in culture. Um, are you hopeful? Are you discouraged with the direction of evangelicalism or yeah, I don't, those are kind of really broad open-ended questions, but would love to get your perspective on just kind of evangelicalism as a whole, as you've been through many decades of involvement. So like in 30 seconds or less? Yeah, we'll start there. Yeah, I'm sure this could probably take another hour. <laughs> okay, here's, so I'm going to give you the short version. I think that younger people, younger Christians, don't hug the theological trees like we used to. I mean, I was grown up, you know, I had to memorize the, the Heidelberg Catechism. I mean, that was doing a hard time, at, you know. <laughs> in, in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that's what we did. And even though I can't say that it actually shaped my life, uh, I, I knew what a biblical worldview was, or at least a covenantal worldview, and I was schooled in that. And so today, kids just not only don't, don't know that, they generally speaking don't care. Mm. They care more about um, does Christianity make you loving and kind and just mm. more than, than doctrine. And to some extent, they're not far, that far off. I think if Jesus had a choice between us being doctrinally correct or kind and loving, I think he would choose kind and loving. Now, people say, well, you can still have both. Yes, you can. But I think that an older generation is, is far more concerned about theological correctness and willing to go to the wall over that and, and being unkind while they're doing it. And so uh, here's the thing. And this is, has nothing to do with Democrats or Republicans, so please don't send hate mail to, to, to um, Preston. My, I, we have uh, five college-age seniors, um, uh, I mean, grandkids, and, uh, and a couple of them that are actually out of college. And I meet with a lot of high school and college-age young Christians. They are disillusioned over... Um, evangelicals being willing to put up with some really unkind behavior in the last number of years, some shrill behavior. And it's confusing to them. They just don't really know what I do. I don't want to be a part of that. Just like they said, they don't want to be part of a, any church that was unkind to LGBT people. They don't want to be part of any church that's unkind to anyone. Hmm. And, and so I think part of the problem, evangelicalism in a broad term, has in the United States, we've got a really bad image, uh, particularly with younger people. And I think the church is going to pay a price for years to come, and I don't really know how you get away from that, because it's gotten to the point where if you um, don't have conservative views on everything, almost everything, 
to abandon those is to is to abandon the faith. And and in some ways, politics and evangelicalism has gotten tied up, at least in the minds of of many people, that I'm not sure it's going to be easy to extricate. Mm. Yeah, and I'm trying to be as delicate as I possibly can. But but you know, my grandkids go, gee, you know, I don't I mean I still love Jesus and I love Jesus, but I don't know if I want to be a part of the church. That's just these people have gone off the rails. Some of the people in the church have gone off the rails, and it's the loudest and most shrill that are the most obvious. And they read Facebook and everything else, and they they go, boy, these people are just goofy. I don't want to be that way. I have no credibility with my friends. I couldn't evangelize people to be Christians at gunpoint at this point uh, um, with it. So I don't know if your experience is the same thing. You and I have yeah. talked about some of these kinds of things, but this is a generational problem. And, and I, frankly, the only way I can see, humanly speaking, to solve it is my generation needs to man up and say, we went off the rails for a few years. We need to get back to being loving and kind to each other. We don't have to agree. I don't think we're going to find unity. Biden's calling everyone for unity. I don't think it's ever going to happen because the things that are important to Christians are not important to every American and every, you know, so I, I don't think we're going to have unity, but can we be civil to each other? Can we be compassionate? Can we be kind to one another, even if we disagree? I think that's achievable. Yeah, no, yeah, I, yeah. And I, I don't mind talking politics, Claire. I, I, you know, people, I talk freely about, you know, I'm very just nonpartisan, independent, I, I look on from the out from a <laughs> Alphan Salmon exile living in Babylon, and I find Babylonian politics to be disturbing and entertaining at the same time, and and never more so than the last couple of years. <laughs> um, I, it from my vantage point, and I've, I've I haven't really been I haven't really paid too close attention to politics until the last couple of years. I mean, just off and on, but it seems extra polarized right now. Is that because I'm just haven't been following it for the last 30 plus years? Or would you say in your experience um, that we're at an all time high of kind of political polarization that is also kind of taken over the church? Um, is Are we in a unique time or? Yeah, you know, of course every generation thinks, you know, this generation is going to pot. But I actually think in the last year, particularly with COVID, you get the maskers and you get the vaxxers and you get, I mean, we're just split in so many ways that have nothing to do with Christians, actually, but just ugly and unkind. And I think social media has allowed people to be ugly and opinionated in public where they used to be able to do it privately and not contaminate everybody else. <laughs> so so I think you know, here's my advice to older Christians. I mean, when I say older Christians, anyone who's got kids, you are going to have to take a breath. And you're going to have to think through, how can I win my kids back to, not to the church, and not just to, but win them back to considering Christianity mm. as, as um, the most important thing that should govern their lives. Mm. Because whether you realize if you're a grandparent, your grandkids are slowly backing away from the church and in doing so, they may be also slowly backing away from Jesus. And just like I had to spend time at, at you know, um, uh, LGBT conferences and everything else, this is not where I wanted to necessarily be. I just knew there was something wrong. I knew that I probably didn't have it right. I needed to learn to articulate a biblical worldview with kindness and compassion to my grandchildren. So I actually did it for my grandchildren. I didn't do it because I was flat out in love with LGBT people. Mm -hmm. I did it because I wanted to have a voice with my grandchildren. Mm -hmm. I wanted to actually be an influencer for them. Because if you just sit back and cross your arms and just hope they come to their senses someday, they won't. Yeah. They may not. I mean, the Holy Spirit can do anything to be sure, but we need, you need to, to learn whatever you need to do to undo some of the damage that's been done by high-profile political and, and, and uh, religious people who have not been very kind. Yeah, That's a good word to end on. Uh, we, we're just across the hour mark, so I know you, you got a lot of, uh, well, you're unemployed, so maybe, you did, you, maybe you've got an open-ended <laughs> open day, but I'm, I'm sure you, 
<laughs> You've got yeah, Sudoku. Yeah, rest of the day it's just nothing but Sudoku. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on, Claire. This this is a long overdue. Um, uh, yeah, I, we talk so often that I'm like, man, I need to. I forget that you haven't actually uh, spoken to my podcast audience. So thank you so much for giving us your time and. Um, many blessings in your ongoing work, ministry, and and uh, your, the adventure of Christianity that you continue to pursue. Well, I got one more thing to say. Sure. It's to your audience. Okay. And by the way, I work for free, so I don't get paid to do this, but <laughs> Preston and Chris are the real thing. I have never seen a husband and wife team that work like they do. And Preston and I don't always agree on things. There's times that, you know, I'm not going to take this man's call. <laughs> you know, we don't... But we love each other, we respect each other, and what you see and hear on these podcasts is exactly how he lives his life. And I am honored to be part of this organization and to be your friend. Thank you, Claire. That means means a lot. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. And I'm Claire DeGraff, and I approve this message. <laughs> uh, Claire DeGraff, what's, you have a website, right? That you, you blog still? And, yeah, ClaireDeGraff.com. Claire DeGraff. The, yeah, the, your name's in the podcast title. Yeah, C-L-A-R-E-D-E-G-R-A-F, ClaireDeGraff.com, or the 10secondrule.com. So look him up, and uh, he's got great blogs. He's still very active. So thanks again, Claire, for being on Theology in the Raw. Thank you, Preston. Thank you.